doing it, we're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo back here with Sam Monson. We're live again on YouTube because the people have wanted to watch us live, so we're going to keep it going. And today we're discussing the biggest NFL draft storylines. We're going to go through it all. Quarterbacks, where are they going? Who are the best ones? So the obvious quarterback debate, but there's more than that. Where are the defensive prospects coming from, Sam? What's going to happen with the wide receivers? How many are going in round one? And then we'll, uh, we'll hit the mailbag. And uh, maybe answer some fan questions live here on YouTube. How you doing, man? Good. How about you? I'm great. Excellent. Ready to dive in? Yeah. Let's go. That's it. Concise. Done. Let's do it. Intro. All right. So the biggest NFL draft storylines, it obviously always starts with the quarterback. So Trevor Lawrence is going to be number one overall. Zach Wilson, uh, we, we expect him to be number two uh, to the Jets overall. And then trying to sort out the next three. Trey Lance, Mac Jones, Justin Fields. What are your thoughts on the quarterback class as a whole and how this thing's going to shake out? Well, I think it's a good quarterback class is the first thing. Um, I, question one is, you know, how good and how deep and how many of these guys are, are likely to be good going forward. I think it's a strong class. Uh, Trevor Lawrence has been the anointed one, the the savior for years, basically the entirety of his college career, right? Day one, he's been expected to be the number one overall pick the the best quarterback in his draft class I think that remained true throughout his college career even if other guys in this group were maybe better during peak periods you know for a small stretch Lawrence body of work and just general overall um sum of everything is the highest so he should be number one but then after that I mean Adam Schefter has been saying you're gonna get four quarterbacks going in the top six picks I I, I think they probably justify it um Justin Fields for a long time has been seen of as like 1-1-A with Trevor Lawrence. For some reason, that's dropping off recently, but like he's right up there. Zach Wilson came out of nowhere this year to put himself in that conversation with a Joe Burrow-esque season at BYU. Trey Lance is the sort of X factor with smaller school, smaller body of work for most of these guys. And then Mac Jones, who is the one whose ascension is skyrocketing towards the draft. Like... Obviously, Alabama, national title, crazy good season. Um, but all of those, whereas all the other guys have got mobility and athleticism, Jones looks like just an average dad. Yeah. It's looks actually like impressive dad. how much fat he's able to carry despite <laughs> allegedly being. I mean, he's not technically a professional athlete yet, but he basically is. Is Mac Jones scheduled for an interview on this show anytime soon? I, That's just mean, Sam. I mean, it's true, isn't it? I mean... You know, most people, the, you know, at one point there was a picture of, um, what's Aquaman's name, the, uh, Jason Momoa, 
like him coming out of the sea, right? And people were fat shaming Aquaman. Right. Right. That's the level like that's the level of nitpicking people are at. And you think like, but, <laughs> but, but but you look at Mac Jones, it's like, no, like they're you know, most of us look like that. Like he just has a regular guy's body. See yeah. And also had a crap like it was one of the few humans alive to have a crappy pro day. Ugh, Dad bought Jones. Anyway, Mac, to me, one of the biggest stories is just the recent trend in NFL quarterback evaluations, right? For for years, we railed against, yeah, you can't teach accuracy, and uh, you know you need to have pocket presence. You need to have all these quarterbacking things first and then tools second. And that the NFL went through a big stretch of missing on toolsy quarterbacks, the Jamarcus Russells of the world, the Blaine Gabberts of the world, and, and you know, you see – even say like a Michael Vick. Like Michael Vick and Drew Brees were in the same draft. You know, Michael Vick was the prototype for the next gen- generation of quarterback. Cannon for an arm and just next level, never before seen speed. And Drew Brees became the Hall of Famer out of that class. So we went through this long stretch of tools not being the thing that mattered. And then all of a sudden, Josh Allen develops in year three. <clears throat> Patrick Mahomes had the tools and the on-field production but made his weaknesses strong and took that arm talent and just, you know, went next level with it. And then Justin Herbert last year has a really good rookie season. So now all of a sudden, is that a thing? Did is we, that just a recent trend? How did, do we how do we view that? Did we reach a period where the NFL just realized what to do with toolsy quarterbacks? So like Vince Young comes into the NFL this year. He's yeah, a Vince better Young's he's a, a better quarterback than he was when he came into the NFL. And got wasted, correct? The NFL, yes. has, the NFL right now has a better idea what to do with Vince Young than it did when Vince Young came into the NFL. Yeah, it, it, <clears throat> you, you like to talk about these, you know, the pendulum and the, uh, you know, the sliders or whatever it is, right? So if you, if you go back in the early 2000s, the slider, if the sliders were build around the quarterback skill set or fit him into an NFL offense, the slider was like 95% fit him into an NFL offense. Yeah. No matter who you are, you're running... The West Coast offense. So you got to get your footwork looking just like just like Joe Montana. You better be just as accurate as Steve Young, and that's the only way you're going to succeed. That slider has been going back the other way. The pendulum is shifting. And I think 2012 was a big turning point. That was when RG3 broke out and Colin Kaepernick broke out. And it's not just a run game perspective. It's the play action stuff, and it's just college passing concepts as well infiltrating the NFL. And I think generally the run game has become closer tied to the passing game. I think they used to be very independent things. You had your package of run plays, you had your package of pass game plays, and the only way that they uh, interacted was you couldn't tell before the snap which was which. Um, but after the snap, it's completely different. Whereas now the run game, like Kyle Shanahan, the, the Shanahan scheme generally, it's tied so that they all fu- function together. RPOs have muddied the line even more so that now, I mean, they're literally the same plays in, in, in instances, these package plays, RPOs, all those kinds of things. So now when you have a quarterback that brings this extra dimension of rushing threat and athleticism, um, you're in this world of, well, you can do a lot more with that because it actually affects the passing game directly, not just, hey, we can deploy him on some run plays that we have to design and back in the day, it was option plays, and we don't really like those because that's exposing our quarterback to being hit. It, it, like now, again, because everything is just so much more tied together, they're in, inherently um, the the athleticism that they have is inherently 
more impactful across a broader spectrum of the offense than it was when you had to just design him a few run plays. Jake Locker is the other name that comes to mind too. Like I would love to see to have seen. I was always intrigued by Jake Locker because he definitely had all those tools and physicality and uh, you know, he was Tebow-esque but probably even cleaner as a passer and he showed his flashes early in his Titans career but he was never really he was one of those guys too that was like why was he drafted at 10 with no on-field production and just tools and Blaine Gabbard and Michael Vick and uh, Vince Young who you mentioned that was a good one right so yeah it is it is fascinating to me to see how these things are potentially changing here's the other thing the other thing I think with Andy Dalton we keep using the Andy Dalton rule and five and six years ago Andy Dalton was the cutoff Andy Dalton is scheduled to be a starter in the NFL right now and he's probably ranked in the 20s among starters and we keep saying finding a starting NFL quarterback is not difficult right now if you need a starter, if you are desperate, you can sign a Cam Newton. You could trade for a Marcus Mariota. You could sign an Andy Dalton. And I don't think it's been easier than ever. I mean, it, we know this. It has, it, it's never been easier to complete passes and put up good passing stats than right now in today's NFL. But if everybody's doing that, where's the edge, right? So if everybody has a quarterback who can at least complete passes and have a 90 passer rating and the whole deal, where's the edge? And the edge either needs to be, you need to be, like, like always, you need to be a pristine passer and much better in a top eight quarterback, or you need to have some sort of athleticism run game or outside of structure ability. And this is where, this is where we come back down to the Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Zach Wilson, Mac Jones debate. Put Trevor in a different world right now. Yeah, I mean. Those I, next four, how well do they create outside of structure? I think ultimately the question of, you know, are – are toolsy quarterbacks becoming more important and more valuable, or did we just go on a run where a bunch of them worked out and therefore we're thinking that it's a more useful thing than it used to be when a bunch of them didn't work out and they were seen as, you know, there are still people entrenched in this idea of running quarterbacks, and it's always running the word they use as opposed to athletic or, you know, any other descriptor, running quarterbacks. We're still in this world where a lot of people went through that period of them not working out, and so it's running quarterbacks can't play in the NFL. But I think because of what we were talking about, this evolution of offensive schemes and systems and um, the way it's all tied together better now, I think athletic mobile quarterbacks are more useful and more um, – they bring more to the table than they used to. Now, it doesn't mean that you can get away without being a capable passer and just rely on that running, but it means that that running gives you a – foundation that you didn't have before so when vince young came into the league if vince young couldn't work out how to be a quality high level nfl passer no amount of vince young's athleticism was going to fix that because it was only really being deployed on scrambles and the occasional like random option play that didn't really do you an awful lot of good now if vince young came into the nfl and was taking his time to work out how to be a quality passer and honestly you know vince young wouldn't be a bad comparison for jalen hurts comparable athleticism probably comparable passing skills um so jalen hurts immediately gives you this foundation of okay our offense is going to be viable because he can run around and we can do a lot with that right off the bat and you saw that as soon as carson wentz went out of the lineup the offense got better jalen hurts came in and just knowing that you're going to have a level of um production because of that rushing ability gives you something to work with same thing with kyla murray if he never got any better as a passer he's good enough 
that you can keep scaling up what he does on the ground. It gives you that that solid level to start with. So raising the floor yeah. of the offense, right? And what what I think that does is then buy you more time to develop them as passers. So whereas it, like so Mac Jones, if Mac Jones comes into the NFL and you goofed on essentially analyzing how good he can be as a passer, you you don't have the time to to get him to where you need to be. Like if he can't do it, you he can't do it and he's going to be out of the job in a year and you got to start over because if he if you missed on his passing ability, there's nothing else propping it up. So he's just going to he's just going to be bad. Whereas if you if Justin Fields or Trey Lance or one of those guys take some time to develop as a passer you can augment that or you can prop it up you can use their rushing ability as a crutch to give you two years to to get them going as a passer so i think the whole dynamics of being an athleticism or an athletic quarterback with rushing ability has changed over the last 10 15 years how much do you look at it from an athletic ability standpoint and just uh natural feel and playmaking standpoint because i think this is as much of a separator and just going back through the recent draft classes i remember looking at josh rosen and sam darnold and i i wanted to put darnold over rosen because i didn't think rosen had that extra ability and then i thought rosen was very similar to dwayne haskins who didn't really have that same ability now darnold hasn't necessarily shown that outside of a few plays you see a you know his incredible throwback across his body last year. You know, late in the game, that was he's shown it. Uh, but that is really what has separated, say, Josh Allen. I remember writing up with Josh Allen. He is more comfortable outside the pocket. He was more comfortable playing backyard football. That was the same scouting report as Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. So are these are these two unicorns? That it's just like, look, Brian Dayball is, is working magic, and the Buffalo Bills did a great job building around them, and Patrick Mahomes went to Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy and the playmakers that they have, and they took two guys who were more comfortable playing backyard football and harnessed them without losing that natural playmaking ability. And, and so that just brings me back to Zach Wilson, and I think what might separate Zach Wilson is that stuff, right? You see all the highlight reel things like the – the, the quick uh, jump throw type of stuff that Aaron Rodgers does, and Zach Wilson has that, and he, 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 he can flick it with flick of the wrist and get the ball to where he wants to go. So I, th I think the NFL is, has that top of mind, right? This feel and, and instincts and playmaking, which is just, that's a different conversation from what we've been having the last four or five years. The old conversation was like velocity, accuracy, but now it feels like, okay, the, the NFL schemes can get you to a certain point. And to get to that next level, it has to be rushing ability or it has to be something outside of structure. Yeah, Wilson is interesting because I think the biggest knock on him is <laughs> that BYU offensive line was amazing and he never had to play under any kind of duress. It was just clean um, platform to work from all the time, right? And that makes it hard because as much as, you know, play from a clean pocket is the most translatable metric or the most translatable thing you can look at and play under pressure is a lot more um, sketchy, it, it volatile, it, it jumps around, it's very difficult to project off the back of it. You need to at least see what happens when a guy is faced with some problems. And you really don't with Wilson. But what I think uh, stands in his stead is that he has this natural tendency to play a little bit like that anyway, like a little bit like Mahomes and Rodgers. And while it's not quite the same thing, 
you at least see that he has the elements there that you can project, okay, if things break down, he has to ad-lib and he has to move around and make those things happen. Like, that's kind of his natural game anyway. So I would be more comfortable projecting Zach Wilson as a guy who can do that, even if we haven't really seen a ton of evidence of it, than I would be any other random quarterback who doesn't have that sort of tendency anyway. So so now circling back to Justin Fields, Trey Lance, and, and Mac Jones, would Mac Jones, in PFF eyes, with a really good grade and hitting open throws and the, and the whole thing, would Mac Jones, would we, would we be higher on him three years ago than yeah, we are probably. right now? Probably. And I think, look, the Mac Jones thing is an interesting discussion because um, I, I don't know if people appreciate just how good he was last year. Like, we're, he, we're looked, he's looked at through the lens of this like punchline of doughy physique and isn't an athlete that's you making fun of him man that's all you i made fun of him this time but other people are making fun of him the rest of the time dad dad bod jones right dad bod jones i hope that takes off (laughs) dbj Uh, DBJ. (laughs) dbj i think is looked down upon because he's carrying a few extra lbs around the midsection um but his pff grade was the highest of any of these quarterbacks last year overall now, but he's the everyman right now because da- with the dad bot over here, you know, I can I can relate. Like, yeah. I can I can sling it around to Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle. I could do that. Right. We could all relate to Mac. But the point is, like, it, there are things to stand against him, not just the dad bod, but he was in this offense that was like a cheat code, right? Alabama's offense is ridiculous. Now, okay, he didn't have two of the first round wide receivers that went to the draft last year, but like when you watch what they're doing with that offense like this other teams can't do this like they're running pick concepts 10 yards into the pattern like Devontae Smith and Waddle crossing at a break 12 yards deep you can't run that in the NFL you can't run that in college most of the time because people don't have the speed or the protection to get it done so those guys were operating an offense that is very much helping him and making him look good well that's what I want to circle back to as well. So the other NFL trend. Right. But my, my, Go ahead. my point, Sorry. just quickly to finish it off, is that so there's definitely reasons to sort of knock him a little bit. But you have to bear in mind where you're knocking him from, which is the highest PFF grade over the season of any of these guys, including Zach Wilson, who also has things that you have to knock him for. I Like, as much as uh, Mac Jones was playing in an offense that helped him, we just said Zach Wilson is playing in an offense where he was never pressured. So my point is simply, look, Mac Jones was really freaking good last year. And as much as we always assume that, hey, look at him, he, he's got a dad bod and he doesn't have a great arm and, you know, he's going to drop in the draft because of that. Like, maybe he's just a really good quarterback. So the other trend I think that is is worthwhile is one we discussed a few weeks back, the idea of, you mentioned the, the situation being so easy. So how many times, going back over the last 10 years, have we seen quarterbacks from just incredible situations? Whether it's the supporting cast, generally it's the supporting cast. Um, And, you know, Mac Jones coming with this incredible PFF grade, the highest PFF grade. You know, you go check it out with our college premium stats, our PFF draft guide, go check it out if you have PFF edge. Just go check out Mac Jones' numbers and his Mm. stats there. But we've seen, like, is uh, Sam Bradford is another guy that came out. And we don't have the, we're just starting to get his PFF grade from back then. But pristine situation at Oklahoma. So back through the years, how many guys have come out of 
an incredible situation versus guys who have come out of a situation where maybe the stats weren't as good, but they elevated their team. So even just going back to 2015, you have Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota coming out. Florida State was loaded. Oregon was loaded. And both of those guys have not caught on as long-term starters. Then you have 2016. You have Jared Goff and Carson Wentz at the top of the draft. Neither one had... I mean, Wentz had a great situation in North Dakota State, but kind of a different world. But this is where you have Dak Prescott coming out of Mississippi State, didn't have receivers who could separate, and that Mississippi State program was just different when Dak was under center. So how much are we... And then Patrick Mahomes at Texas Tech and Josh Allen. So it keeps coming back to these same guys. Guys that were... Did not have the Alabama, the late, uh, you know, Sam Bradford, Oklahoma, the recent Oklahoma situation. Didn't have these great situations, but then they got into the NFL and took it to the next level. So I think that's where there's also reservations about Mac Jones and the recency bias of Tua just didn't look great in his limited time last year. How much are teams weighing this now? What you're coming out with and, you know, what you had to deal with in college. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that Tua doesn't help him. You know, we saw Tua struggle relatively compared with the rest of the quarterbacks in his draft class. You know, his mitigating circumstances coming off the injury, et cetera. But um, I, I, I think it's real that that Alabama offense helps those guys so much that they are going to have a harder transition to the NFL than other players that aren't used to such a massive advantage helping them out but that's not to say that we should completely dismiss um how good those guys have been and mac jones in particular i think might be getting overlooked because we're focused on the athlete and the body and all those kinds of things and look like justin fields just ran a 4-4 that could be even faster if he didn't have better form and all those kinds of things like he's up against some special athletes and um just physical specimens and then you look at Mac Jones and he looks like Tom Brady's, you know, Tom Brady back in when he was coming out, 99, 2000, which year Brady? Brady was 2000. 2000. Yeah. So he looks like 2000 Brady who'd been on the banquet circuit like Ryan Leaf, you know, putting on a few extra pounds. So I Friend think the show. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we just overlook how good he was because of that. But if you actually dive into the numbers, there's a lot of reasons to think that Mac Jones is worthy of being in the discussion with these guys, which is where the current smoke seems to put him in terms of like rumors and talk. All right, let's, let's wrap it up with this and the, the NFL trends, all of the smoke being Mac Jones to the Niners. Yes. Doesn't make any sense to me. Doesn't. It does not. Okay. The 49ers just, they, they tipped their hand, man. They've got, they have Jimmy Garoppolo. He's mm -hmm. already on the roster. The Rams had Jared Goff. The NFL when you when you're a good play caller, they're getting sick of the quote unquote system quarterback. They're getting sick of it. Yeah. When you've had it for a couple of years, they're ready to move on. The Rams showed it. The 49ers showed it. I don't think there's any way that the 49ers said, "Hey, we got Jimmy Garoppolo. We're going to upgrade with Mac Jones now. Rookie Mac Jones is going to be better than right now Jimmy Garoppolo." Yeah, and let the only thing that Shanahan is, is in the the Niners are trading up for is something different that can elevate that offense, not execute it at 2019 Jimmy Garoppolo level. Well, okay, but first of all, we don't know they're getting rid of Jimmy Garoppolo this year. First, they've said they're not. Now, what if they're telling the truth? Well, even but even if they're keeping him, yeah, you're going to number three to get a quarterback yes. that's going to 100%. be Kyle Shanahan offense. 
right. 5.0. But right? It's going to be the next thing. But he doesn't necessarily need to be better year one. Like, if they are to be believed, they would plan on starting Jimmy G, getting an Alex Smith, Patrick Mahomes season out of him where you light a fire under his ass and Jimmy G plays the best football of his career before you move to the, ro- to the rookie sophomore in year two who you expect to be better and take the offense to a different level. Now, okay, in, to envisage that being Mac Jones, you do need him to be special as a passer because he's not going to be offering much in terms of athleticism and dynamism outside of structure. But what, like the whole, the whole narrative around him has been that he's Tom Brady 2.0. Now, I'm not promoting that, but his own teammates and his co- like people around him have all have been drawing the parallels to Tom Brady 2.0 and it would make a lot of sense in terms of look this is a dude with a dad bod who had a crappy pro day but if you put him in an offense he just goes and wins a national title and has the best grade in the in the nation so <laughs> there are parallels to Tom Brady is all I'm saying look Tom Tom no longer has a dad bod now that he's a dad that's the other part that's true. If if Mac embraces TB12 method, then maybe. Well, there you go. Maybe that's all he needs. I, I just I just look at what the Niners are doing. They're looking at the landscape of the division, and Kyler Murray is there, and Russell Wilson is there, and Matthew Stafford is there too with Sean McVay. Mm-hmm. And and I can't imagine he's like Mac Jones. Mac Jones is the guy that's going to get me to that next level. I mean, I, it would I be a wild he, statement, but I I don't think it's implausible. No, of course. I mean, nothing is. I'm not. I'm not in the room. I'm, but I'm just. I'm. I'm trying to give my own interpretation of what we're seeing here. Because if it, there's, if Mac Jones is Tom Brady, that's one thing. But if he falls just short, or if he, if he falls a little short of being Tom Brady, he's Jimmy Garoppolo. And now, so the other part of the strategy I mean, is there's, there's quite a difference. Like that's. I mean, there's quite a large just, gap between Jimmy Garoppolo and Tom Brady. Let me reword it to Mac, to wedge yourself if you make it as an NFL quarterback. Mac Jones is far more likely to be Jimmy Garoppolo than he is Tom Brady. Sure, but isn't that true for every quarterback? Like, yes, of course. Yeah, so like Justin your, Fields is far more likely to be insert random not great quarterback than, than Russell Wilson. Yeah. But, that, but to your point, with the QB rushing ability and the extra stuff that's added from a Justin Fields or a Trey Lance, the floor is now higher. So you've, you've raised your, your floor and ceiling are theoretically higher with Fields or Lance. And I think Kyle Shanahan's going to look at this and say, I've hit the Jimmy Garoppolo ceiling. I need to see what the Justin Fields ceiling looks like. I need to see what the Trey Lance ceiling looks like because I have a feeling the Mac Jones ceiling is similar to Jimmy Garoppolo's. That's what I think they're looking at. Now, I, I tweeted out, is the NFL getting tired of system quarterbacks? And everybody's like, every, every quarterback's in a system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The point is, the system quarterback, the mid-tier quarterback is the, is the way I like to classify it it's not the system it's middle tier quarterback it's the quarterbacks who pretty much can only st- succeed and put up good passing production with everything around with the, with the, with a great ecosystem uh, Tom Brady is not a system quarterback despite what the folks tell you Drew Brees was never a, a system quarterback those guys were elevating everybody around them you know outside of a few very rare instances those guys are great they're not system quarterbacks. I'm talking about the mid-tier quarterbacks of the NFL who cannot elevate an offense without great wide receivers or a great offensive line or a great play caller. I think the NFL is getting uh, the good play callers are, are trying to take that next step, and we've seen it in the NFC West. Yeah, I mean, I just I want to make the point, firstly, that I don't believe that 
right? I would have Justin Fields as the quarterback I'm taking if I'm San Francisco. I'm just saying that there is a world whereby Kyle Shanahan, guru of offense and quarterback play in a way we're not, believes that Mac Jones is this Tom Brady version. Maybe he's not Tom Brady 2.0, but maybe they think he's closer to that than he is Jimmy Garoppolo, right? And if they believe he's in that realm of, of player, A, it would explain trading that much to jump to three, um, and B, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that that's the game plan, right? We bring him in, we anticipate a slower than average transition, so we're going to keep Jimmy G to be the quarterback this year. We think that that motivation will have Jimmy G playing out of his mind. Year two, we turn it over to Mac Jones, who's ready to be Tom Brady light for the next 10 years in this offense. And okay. I believe as Kyle Shanahan, Tin Cup, slash whatever, Rembrandt, I don't need a quarterback that can run around and make plays because this offense will maximize his potential. Copycat league. I hadn't thought of this. I, I thought as soon as the Niners made this move, Jimmy G's out the door. But are you saying copycat league? The Patriots drafted Jimmy Garoppolo, mm. and all of a sudden Tom Brady wins multiple Super Bowls after three more Super Bowls after Jimmy Garoppolo is drafted, and it inspires him. And the Green Bay Packers draft Jordan Love, mm. and then Aaron Rodgers goes on and has his MVP caliber season. Maybe Chiefs, Shanahan Chiefs draft Mahomes and Alex Smith as a career year. Mahomes leads to an Alex Smith career year. Are the Niners? simply trying to extract that one career year they've done the analytics and said it's it's three for three in no, it's, not. it's three for four because the eagles drafted jalen hurts and carson wentz implodes <laughs> he completely implodes in a like flaming supernova just so three for four yeah in recent history from what we've seen that's that's the uh that's the plan there i i, I hadn't honest i honestly hadn't even thought of it from that standpoint i, I knew obviously anything's possible I was assuming Jimmy G was out, that they're going all in on this quarterback. I still think that's the most likely outcome. I'm just saying that, like, everybody acting that that the Mac Jones scenario would be ridiculous. I, it isn't that crazy. Like, it's not – you can construct an argument that makes that perfectly valid. All it means is that your evaluation of Mac Jones has to be that this kid is, like, genuinely phenomenal, which is not – I mean, like I said, his grade and his tape says that that isn't nuts. Like, it's it's an argument you can make pretty easily. So, th there's plenty more to talk about on the quarterbacks. I want to get to a couple of the other storylines around the NFL draft. We could talk receivers, un unpacking the receiver class, how many go in the first round, and then the defensive players. Do you want to go defensive players or receivers? Uh, let's go receivers first. Let's go okay. offense. Let's discuss, let's discuss, discuss the receivers. Uh, Jamar Chase... Jalen Waddle's number two currently on the PFF draft board. Devontae Smith is number three. Rashad Bateman from Minnesota, number four. We actually went through PFF Daily today, went through the pros and cons of all of these guys. Go check it out. Twice. Go and we had some technical difficulties, but we resolved it. So mm. if you already listened to it before about 10 a.m. this morning, you may have gotten the cutoff version. We, we fixed it. And we fixed Steve's technical difficulties. So um, even if you're live on YouTube right now, go and subscribe to the PFF NFL Daily. You get a little bit more detail on those receivers. What do you make of this receiver class? And do we put Kyle Pitts, the tight end from Florida, right in the middle of it after his ridiculous pro day yesterday? I mean, he wouldn't go in the middle of it. He'd go at the sharp end of it. Um, yeah, look, Kyle Pitts. Pitts chase at the top? Yes. Um, if Kyle Pitts was coming into this draft as just – 
a wide receiver, an ex wide receiver, like a number one wide receiver, I think you would have a very strong argument to say that he's the number one guy over Jamar Chase, or at least right up there with him. Now, obviously, that's projection. He hasn't done that much in college. I mean, he's played outside a reasonable degree, but he hasn't spent you know an entire season doing it like Jamar Chase did. So it would be projection to do that. But you know, you look at his numbers. His pro day athleticism is wide receiver esque. It's wide receiver esque, supersized, right? Because he's six five, two hundred and forty five pounds. It's his numbers are kind of crazy for that. So he's definitely got the athleticism to do it. Um, he's got the tape to do it as well. You look at his tape of him playing wide receiver, whether it's in the slot or split out wide, he plays at an extremely high level. He's got tape of him beating first round cornerbacks as a wide receiver. Deep down the sideline, you got J.C. Horn, who's a lot of people's number one corner, and a press man, number one corner, playing press man against him. So he's winning in the area that J.C. Horn is supposed to be good at. Um, he beat Patrick Sertan on a, a slant route for an easy first down against Alabama, which, to be fair, I think is Patrick Sertan's weakest thing to deal with. Is But my point is, he's got wide receiver skills. He is the first genuine tweener between wide receiver and tight end. That term used to get thrown around as just like, it's a, it's a bad thing. If you're a wide receiver, tight end tweener, it means you're either a fat wide receiver or a tight end that can't block. And therefore you're just lodged in this world where you don't really have a position in the NFL. He is a tweener who can do both. He's a, he's caught, he's a wide receiver that can block fine. He's an inline blocker. Um, he's not phenomenal at it, but nobody is in college, right? He's more than capable of being an inline blocker at the NFL level. Uh, and he's uncoverable from the tight end positions. And he's more than fast enough to line up on the outside against number one corners and beat them deep down the sideline. So I think Kyle Pitts has the potential to be a like a, a positionless player on offense that is uncoverable across like wherever the hell you line him up. What are your thoughts on my comp for him? What was it? Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman? Yeah. Why? Because he just gets the ball. Because he just gets the ball. Yeah. Dennis Rodman would average 15 rebounds a game when the Despite next closest only guy being was like 6'6 six, six or whatever he was. He was 6'8, six, 6'9, six, I think. Was he? I don't yeah. I didn't think he so was that big. I think he was 6'8, six, 6'9. Six, I mean, he was a he was a power forward. He was power forward-ish size. I don't think he was 6'7 is the list. 6'7. So I yeah. mean, he's he's an undersized power forward. Right. Uh, but he just he knew Dennis Rodman understood angles. He had tenacity hmm. and for, you know, ball skills in basketball terms, right? He just went up and, and got it. That's to me, that's pits, right? I mean, when the ball is in the air, there is a skill to to getting it, to catching it. They say high pointing, whatever, but just getting it where you're supposed to catch it, right? Yeah. Well, not just positioning that. your yeah. body to do it. He's really good at like, I mean, even on like slants. If I've never seen anybody make off target catches look as easy to bring in as he does. Yeah. So like he'll run a slant and the ball's back here. Right. Like, that's a horrible place to catch a ball. Right. And he just like reaches back, catches it in stride, and carries on going. Like, that is freakish. And it's the kind of stuff where, like, if you make stuff like that look that easy, it, you, it's very easy to ignore it and to just pretend it's not a thing. But, like, that's a skill most people don't have. Most people don't even catch that ball, let alone catch it and make it look easy enough that you didn't even really register it until the second watching. So there's really not a true NFL comp for Kyle Pitts. No, I think the there closest isn't. one we've come up to is Darren Waller, who was a former wide receiver, bulked up to tight end. Well, the, the comp is all theoretical, right? The comp is like what ha what would happen if you use Calvin Johnson in line some 
or you know what would happen it's that kind of stuff right it's like take a freaky athlete at one of those two positions and then just start projecting what would happen if you asked him to do the other stuff Pitts, we've at least seen evidence of him doing both which is what makes it really intriguing yeah and and he improved he improved his pff run blocking grade go check out uh, again the pff draft guide if you want our college premium stats over at pff.com see the improvement he went from the 40s to the 60s from a run blocking standpoint so he's not Gronk. Kyle Pitts is not Gronk. He's not uh, what he's not going to be one of the better run blocking tight ends in the league. He's not even you know T.J. Hawkinson coming out a couple years ago. But as long as he's reasonable as a run blocker, it, it, that's not how you maximize his the draft pick. You, it's not that you need to have you know 300 excellent run blocking snaps from Kyle Pitts. It's just that's how you can create more mismatches. There'll be some corners. Like if he goes up against Jalen Ramsey, you know he maybe he meets his match, right? I mean There'll, maybe, but <laughs> maybe, but maybe not. But there'll be some corners that will handle Pitts better. But then when you can line him up in line and you can have him move uh, and and make a few blocks on the move and the whole deal, now you've got even more mismatches. 4-4-ish, say 4-5 speed. Pro day adjustment. But running the seam in the middle of the field, and now you're maximizing his receiving ability. What makes the run blocking thing is, is, is he prohibitively bad at it to the point where nobody needs to take it as seriously as a problem on defense? That was Aaron Hernandez's problem, right? It's like you are so bad as an inline blocker that there's no point in us ever thinking of it as a fa- as a factor. We can just line up a defensive back over you because you can't block that guy either, let alone a linebacker. If so, Travis Kelsey is a good example. Travis Kelsey was not a phenomenal blocker earlier in his career, and still isn't. He's never been. He's never going to be Gronk, but he's good, and he's gotten better every year of his career, and he's definitely good enough that you can't just like treat him as a wide receiver. You actually have to factor in what happens if they run the ball and he's blocking. Um, I, I think Pitts can definitely do that. Quick break to tell you about our friends at Underdog Fantasy. If you like fantasy football and if you like playing fantasy for money, you need to check out Underdog Fantasy. They've got everything, including season-long and playoff best ball. Best ball is a season-long game where you draft a team like you normally do, but that's it. There's no in-season roster management. Underdog automatically selects your best performers each week, saving you loads of time. So go to Underdog Fantasy and now listen to this. Deposit just 10 bucks using the promo code PFF, and you get a free PFF Edge annual subscription. So I just talked about how you get the PFF draft guide, and you check Kyle Pitt's run-blocking grades, and you check Jamar Chase's awesome receiving grade from 2019. We can get it for 10 bucks at Underdog Fantasy. Just use the promo code PFF. Draft now at Underdog Fantasy. So Jamar, Jamar Chase, the guy I just mentioned. Hmm. Top receiver on our board. I think it's pretty clear. The guy wins, does it all him versus Pitts who you taking does it depend on what you have or is it really I mean Kyle Pitts is legitimately a fit for every single team the only problem I have with the idea of taking Kyle Pitts is that in order to maximize how special he can be I do think you need a degree of creativity in your offensive mind which most teams don't really have whereas Jamar Chase is idiot proof. What's creativity? He's just the number one. But is creativity just putting him out wide, putting him as the as the as the X receiver in a three by one set? Is that creativity, or because everybody has that in their playbook, or is it just the fact that you don't need it just in your playbook? You need to do it eight to ten times a game. Yeah, I mean it's understanding how how so all this versatility is only useful if you're prepared to use it to actually generate an edge on offense to actually manufacture mismatches and cause problems for defense in and above what it is you're doing just with your play calls and everything else you're running. 
So otherwise, what's the point, right? Like we just take Kyle Pitts. He's great at all these things, but we're only going to ask him to do a couple of them. And it's not really, it's not generating any, it's not a force multiplier to the rest of the offense other than just putting a better player in one of these positions. The whole point of a Kyle Pitts to me is that he's special enough and versatile enough in a genuine way as opposed to does a lot of things badly and is therefore versatile. Like he's versatile enough that it can create a force multiplier to everything else you do on offense if you're prepared to lean into that and scheme things around him. Like you get players at the college level and the NFL level who teams are prepared to scheme up touches for, but it's just because like we think he's quite a talented playmaker. Let's try and get the ball into his hands. If you're not, you should be doing that across the entire offense around Kyle Pitts. Whereas Chase is just idiot proof, right? He's just a great number one receiver. You plug him into your number one receiver spot and you're better. The end. So you get better with either of them. But I think Kyle Pitts gives you a higher ceiling if you're prepared to lean into that. I just don't know how many teams are. Devontae Smith or Jalen Waddell? I know where you stand. There's internal debate. Renner has Waddle ahead of Devontae Look, Smith. To me, the discussion is Devontae Smith or Jamar Chase, not Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle. Okay. Well, we got to get you into our draft meeting rooms and reshape the board, if that's the case. Concerns about Devontae's size. Yeah. That's his only negative. That's it. Yes. Like, people have described Jamar Chase as, you know, a receiver with no holes in his profile. You know, has the athleticism, which he just showed at his pro day. He's got the production, obviously. He's got the breakout age, all those kinds of things. Everything that you want to see, Chase ticks the box. Um, the only real hole in Devontae Smith's profile is he's 170 pounds. And it's not 170 where you say, all right, he's got the frame to add 20 pounds. We get him into an NFL weight program. It'll be 190. It's not a problem. We'll move on. No, like he played at Alabama. <laughs> They're not struggling for a, a weight program. He... Played at 170, he said, look, I'm 170. That's what I'm. That's who I am. Deal with it. Like, this is me. Speaking of 190, we have breaking news here on the PFF NFL podcast. Rashad Bateman has his pro day measurables in. Oh, yeah? He is listed at 6'2", 210. Yes. On Minnesota's website. Do you want to know how he uh, measured in today? <laughs> well, apparently 190. 190. Was so he at least 6'2"? He's 6 feet and 3 eighths. Oh, wow. They... <laughs> 6003 if you are the three people in the world who understand scouts nomenclature that was interesting because when i watched his tape he bounced around between looking big and small depending on who he was lining up against like there were plays where he looked 62 200 or 210 and then there were plays where like there's no way that's true does that make you uh, Devonte adams is listed at 61 does that in in bateman's releases and again we mentioned it on the pff daily his releases remind you of the Devontae Adams or the I mean, Keenan Allen him, He's type. the same. Like, that puts him into, yeah, Stephon Diggs, I think, is 6'1 as well. Um, but he's that kind of size receiver. Now. Bateman felt so much bigger at Minnesota, I thought, early in his career because he was making a lot of contested catches, and, and it was just he was a he was a catch point monster. And then I think he has he has developed, you know, his releases and all that stuff. But, he, uh, you know, 6 feet 190, he didn't feel like a 6 foot 190 type of player. So, I don't know, maybe – either slimmed down. I mean, it, obviously the height's never, not really changed. <laughs> slimmed down, slunched, or uh, hunched, slouched. I mean, Jamar Chase is 11 feet tall. I mean, they're going the yeah, opposite direction true. here. So uh, Rashad Bateman, wide receiver four on the PFF draft board. Renner's going to drop him below Elijah Moore now. Oh, God, stop He's going to drop him even lower. Anyway, how many first-round receivers do we think we end up with? We've got 
Jamar Chase, Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddell, Rashad Bateman. I feel good about those four being first-rounders. I don't know if we're higher on Bateman than the rest of the NFL. but well, we might be now. We might be now. The next tier, uh, Terrace Marshall from LSU could be another guy that sneaks in. Well, I he's think- a guy that's going to go up because apparently every other wide receiver is smaller than you thought they were. Yeah, so, so he's huge and ran the one high big, four threes. Yeah, the one big receiver in this sort of top end of the draft class is probably going to get pushed up because you only need one team, right? You just need one team to like the skill set that you bring and you're going to get what everyone else would see as a reach. Um, so a guy like Mar- like if a team needs a big wide receiver or wants a big wide receiver, he's the guy. So somebody picking in the first round somewhere is probably going to snag that guy because there aren't really any other alternatives. Like uh, Bateman would have been the one, but <laughs> Bateman isn't. So yeah, it's, it's Marshall. Uh, this is what uh, Booger uh, responded to me when I asked, what's the biggest NFL draft storyline? Friend of the show, Booger. He said, after the top three wide receivers, who's four through six? And then he asked about the order of the top five tackles and then the best pass rusher. So wide receivers four through six. Again, we have Bateman at four. We have, as a PFF draft board, Elijah Moore is five and then Terrace Marshall is six. Moore, I think the struggle here is that he is a slot receiver much like a Rondell Moore, much like a Kadarius Toney. And I think the value of those guys from an NFL standpoint pushes them to the second round. Sterling Shepard is the last guy. I kind of remember that – did he even go in the first round? I'm starting to lose my mind now with what where we put him. Did he go in the second? Yeah, I think Sterling? so. I st- what happens with me is I mocked him in the first round probably 15 times. Right, the whole way. And then, you know, forget where he actually went. Sterling Shepard – He is, went second round pick number 40. 40, right. So, to me, that's where I think the NFL values in Elijah Moore. And I think Sterling Shepard's probably the most recent slot first player – Justin Jefferson's different, I guess, but well, Justin Jefferson—he has the yeah. size of an outside. <coughs> Sterling yeah. Shepard's the slot-looking receiver that had first-round type of value that went in the second round, and I think Elijah Moore is similar there. And to be fair, I think we were projecting Shepard as a guy that could play outside and we therefore did. wasn't as limited as a slot, but but it's right. turned into that guy. Jefferson, the question was, okay, he looks like a an outside wide receiver but he spent almost his entire time certainly last the last season before he hit the nfl in the slot does all the stuff he was doing from the slot still work on the outside of the nfl level it was not that he can't do it it was we just haven't seen it and it's a question mark now he answered the question and the answer was a resounding hell yes but the question is what pushed him below other receivers where you can at least see evidence of them doing it and being successful um elijah moore not only is there no evidence of him doing it, but I don't think he can do it. I don't – when you look at his skill set, he is – he's a perfect slot receiver. He will be a very good slot receiver. I have almost complete confidence in that. He's tough. He's fast. He's shifty. He's got great hands. Um, he's another player like Kyle Pitts that made, like, silly adjustments look ridiculously easy. At his quarterback at one point almost missed on a pop pass, which I didn't think was possible. Um like it was low and away in front of him. And instead of like the play being blown, the thing going to hell, like more just whilst running the jet sweep, reaches down into his left one-handed and just plucks it out of the, the air with his left hand and carries on trucking. You're like, honestly, you probably don't even notice that play most of the time, but that's not an easy adjustment to make on the fly. And he made a bunch of those without even thinking about them. So he'll be really good. But anytime he lined up wide, which wasn't often, 
he was stacked or he was facing off coverage, he was basically never tested against press. And I don't anticipate him being able to deal with that. What One of the things you said there, the fact that you, you just feel strongly about he's going to be a good slot receiver. Yeah. So I think one of the be- the biggest draft debates is drafting certainty or confidence versus projection upside or just bigger payoff, so to speak. So we had this debate last year with Chase Young at the top of the draft. You feel far more certain. If you just use PFF grades and nothing else, you feel far more certain with your projecting a pass rusher, projecting a defensive lineman. However, the payoff from a great corner might be greater. Again, using our data and, and what we know about, you know, coverage being extremely valuable with Elijah Moore is the answer the same thing as what you said about Kyle Pitts though too you've got this certainty that that he could be a really good slot but you you need an offense where he's going to be used as such you know every offense is using 11 personnel three wide receivers quite quite often but if he went to say Minnesota where they have two wide receivers they like to run two tight ends you're not getting that value so do he Elijah Moore needs to go to a team that's running a lot of three wides and will feature him in the slot for him to have first round value. Sure, I mean, I think ultimately this is a question that we should be able to answer with all the data and we just have to work at it a bit harder and longer is if you have a guy, and it works on both sides of the ball, if you have a great slot receiver or a great slot corner, now those are harder because most most slot corners in the NFL are kind of projected from outside corners in college. There aren't that many that are a slot corner the whole way. But let's say you have a guy that you're like extremely confident in will be a great slot player at the next level what should that value be versus the uncertainty of a guy who okay we we think this guy can play outside but it's it's way more of a question mark we don't we're not at all as confident in his ability to be good at the harder task but the harder task is is clearly more valuable than being just a slot player so but that that defines where you're going to take Elijah Moore because I I don't think he can play outside at which point your question is how high in the draft should a very good slot a slot receiver go? Like if he becomes Tyler Boyd at the next level, where would you draft Tyler Boyd in this upcoming draft if you knew that's what you were getting? Still second. Right. So my, my thing is, and, and so here's what I think the trick is. Using the PFF data, the data would probably tell us he's, he'll, he's a top 32 player in this draft. A, a dependable slot receiver will be a top 32 player. I think the trick to winning the draft is getting two of those guys in the first two rounds. And I think that's and that's where position scarcity and the NFL valuing positions differently than we might is where the advantage lies. So I think, you know, so uh, uh, the – why did I just blank on, <laughs> on my favorite player in this draft, the Washington slot corner. Gosh, what am I doing? Where did he go? He's like, Elijah Molden. <laughs> ruin it good thing we're live yeah elijah molden is number 50 on the pff draft board i'm gonna yell at renner too he should be higher i think elijah molden ends up as a top 32 most valuable player in this draft yeah i think i think elijah moore also does so i mean you can make the argument that you should actually just lean into the certainty and say look let's target players that we the, the, the strike rate from everybody in the draft is still crappy enough that you gain an edge by simply getting it right even if you're overdrafting those players so actually, if you just lent in to the confidence factor and drafted good players, Steve, hashtag t-shirt, et cetera, et cetera. If you just drafted good players and lent into the, the more confident you are on a player actually panning out, 
it doesn't matter that you're overdrafting those guys compared to the people of higher upside. You win just by not busting on as many. See, I, but then I've, I've changed my tune through the years because I think the, the guys that are good players tend to drop. So the NFL, so it's not that you have to value players the same way that the NFL does. I think, again, when we talk about certainty, there are levels to that. So if you were just using PFF grades, you you feel more confident in finding a, a valuable edge defender or a defensive lineman or projecting a slot corner or projecting a slot receiver. I think our strategy would be take that confidence and grab those guys in the second and third round. It, but and, and then knowing, I'm we're feeling more confident you're going to get a good player in the second or third round. But for the in the first round, you're trying for the massive payout as much as possible. So get the highest value positions, the, the corners, the receivers, and the QBs, of course, but the guys that are going to have the biggest payout. But even if you miss there, you have safer players in rounds two and three. I mean, I think the other issue is that I'm not sure there's any evidence that there is a confidence differentiator. Like, I'm not sure there's any evidence that you can have greater confidence in a player and therefore have a greater strike rate on those players. There's no... There's, it's a very difficult thing to parse out, right? Because ultimately you're taking players you think will be good. Otherwise, what's the point? So how do you, how do you go back and, and backfill the data to say, these were the players we had really high confidence in. These were the players we knew were kind of gambles. We took them anyway. You know what I mean? It's very difficult to then use that data to project, okay, you actually should be drafting players you have more confidence in. It's just a hard thing to quantify because nobody is going out there even in scouting reports, like official NFL scouting reports, there isn't like a number that's a confidence factor, right? It's just they're on a grading scale, and right, that's right. the that's who you think will be the best pick. There isn't therefore there isn't then a corresponding number that's like we're this guy's a nine confidence. We're nine confident that this guy will pan out and be amazing versus a guy that's five confident that this guy will pan out and be amazing. I think you're onto something right here that I might implement over in PFFIQ. So if you guys are an if you're an NFL team, you probably already saw the NFL the PFF IQ pitch but if you haven't yet hit me up but this is but that's what we're doing for NFL teams is 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 parsing through our data and saying okay what is what is most important and how do you best project players what what about our data uh makes the most sense and what should you focus on I think the way you lay it out is right is in I think something we could work toward a draft grade a confidence grade in that draft so the data and all the evaluation makes you feel really strongly about this. This is safe or this is risky. And not in the fact that like, oh, this guy runs fast and jumps high, therefore, you know, upside. But then the payoff too is important. And this this yeah. goes back to the whole running back thing, right? If you can mash, uh, match risk with payoff, like yes. you're making a bet, right? There's a difference betting on the Chiefs against the worst team in the league, the payoff is different than when you bet against the Chiefs against the Bucks, right? Against a, a good team, right? The payoffs are different. Positional value is the same exact thing. Hitting on a corner is different from hitting on a defensive lineman is different from hitting on a quarterback. And I think that's a great way to build your draft board and, and mitigate risk and diversify your funds. I mean, yeah, it's a missing piece, I think, to the, right, the game down. theory strategy of how everybody is trying to focus on the draft. Um, we're all caught up in position value and all these kinds of things, but we're not quantifying anywhere how confident people are in these evaluations, which differs for every player. Like, so I am, Devontae Smith and Jamar Chase are very close for me at the top of this draft. They're one and one A. I think honestly, if all things were equal and if I didn't know anything about measurables and size, 
I would say that Devontae Smith's tape is better than Jamar Chase's, and I would have him as my number one uh, receiver. But we know that Devontae Smith is 170 pounds, and there's not a long history of players of that size succeeding. So that has to ding your confidence in his ability to some degree. How much is, is up for debate? But the point is, if you were then applying like a confidence um, number to your evaluation of both those players, your confidence would be higher for Jamar Chase than it would be for Devontae Smith, which has to change your draft strategy, right? But that's one thing that nobody's factoring into any of this. There's two more things I just want to touch on somewhat quickly. First thing, what do we do with all the ridiculous pro day numbers? Hmm. Are, why are people... Should we put them on the historic scale? Well, they're fake news now numbers? because they're pro day numbers, not combine numbers. I think it's the way a lot of people are treating this. Um, it's, what's, what's the right way to handle pro day numbers? It, it looks like the NFL is getting this influx of just ridiculous cyborg athletes coming in so the who problem, all run sub 4-4. The problem is this year is different to normal pro day factors. Generally, you should take pro day numbers with a pinch of salt and factor them down i guess like ding them a little bit take a percentage off them compared to the combine because that's what the historical data tells you to do now one thing to bear in mind is look there's going to be a, a large proportion of pro day numbers are players who aren't happy with their combine numbers and therefore are probably going to skew towards getting better because why would you do it again if you didn't think you could get any better right they're players that oh i'm a 4-3 guy i ran a 4-5 at the combine i gotta fix that whatever the 4 a.m wake up call mess with me that's, now i'm gonna go to my pro day to me that's the biggest thing i'll right. talk about that in a run second. a four day run a four three fix it and now we're good so the pro day the fact that pro day numbers are generally better than combine numbers is probably skewed by a bunch of those players right it's probably also a factor of look it's your home environment you don't get woken up at 4 a.m to go and piss in a cup and do your medical stuff whatever so generally that's why you you take a percentage off pro day numbers to adjust them to like a combine standard but we're in a world where covid hit the season a lot of these guys opted out spent the last year training for essentially pro days some of them did yeah sure but a lot of these guys spent a, a good period of time more than they would normally for to run a 40 and to run a three cone and to run like to do broad jumps and all this kind of stuff so again you would expect the numbers to be better but then the other thing is like people have actually looked at the data and that like they're not that much better <laughs> like it's it's the it's average points that are uh, better yeah but uh, really like a small one like it's not only is it single digits but it's like one or two like point one or two or one or two percent sorry better like it's you're talking about 0 0.05 in average 40 time different to normal year so this idea of like we're seeing just this cataclysm of everybody's running a four three this year's a joke we're really not like we're seeing a bunch of people run a tiny one percent on average faster than they do in a normal combine year it isn't the big divergence that we think it is potentially i mean i i really think the biggest thing and i think daniel jeremiah may have mentioned this somewhere before i've been saying this for a while but what happens at the combine with these guys they fly in two days one day before their workout they fly in there's travel involved obviously to get there and then they're just wall-to-wall -wall doing stuff, mm. right? They're getting tested. They're in interviews. They're up at 5 a.m. or 3 a.m. or whatever it is for which their drug test. Right, and which isn't, by the way, like a universal, like, oh, well, it's the same for everybody. Like home field advantage, right? It, uh, every, everybody has to do it, so it affects them all the same. 
there are people out there that cannot cope with mornings, right? They just they're not morning people. You wake those guys up at five a.m. You're speaking the, from experience. Yes, yeah. at the day you're asking those guys to go run a 40-yard dash time later in the afternoon. You wake that guy up at 5 a.m., it isn't the same as waking up, you know, another guy, some freak who's always up at 5 a.m., and that's just how he operates. It's not the same, right? You can't, you can't apply, like, a level universal thing. So the combine is going to mess with some people more than it messes with others because of all that stuff you're talking about. And you're talking about a number, like a 40 time, that is so intricate, and you're splitting hairs, and a, you know, half a percentage difference is... A big difference as yeah. far as so those things add up and they matter so just this being at home getting a decent night's sleep not having to travel not worrying about interviews not worrying about drug tests and the whole deal and just being able to go out and run i think in general is going to make these guys better plus you have the guys who probably ran a great 40 at indy to your point they're not going to run again at their pro day now you're just seeing them run at their pro day so the guys who are fast run fast mm. at pro day the guys who are run fast usually only run fast at the combine. Yeah. So now you're starting to see them at the pro day. So I'm back and forth on it, right? I think the pro day is a better place for better numbers, and you have better players working out at pro days in the, in in the whole deal. But it does seem like we're getting an influx of an in, incredibly athletic yeah, group, which I think is true. I mean, ultimately, I think the takeaway should be if you're of the opinion that this pro day year is just a whole sequence of fake news and none of these guys are athletic or are as athletic as the numbers they're posting i think you need to readjust what the data is actually saying i also don't know that it's apples to apples to be like well here's what this guy did here and here's what this guy did at the combine six years ago yeah um so i i think generally we are going to see an influx of incredibly athletic players which is probably to be expected like a lot of these guys we already knew were freaky athletes I, this isn't a surprise for most of them all right, here's one more story. Defensive players. Where are they? Where are the impact <laughs> defensive players? Currently on the PFF draft board, one, two, three, four, five, six defensive players in the top 20. Then there's a bunch in the 20s. We just uh, reshaped the board. There's a bunch of players in the 20s. But we're still talking about, we talked about certainty earlier in the whole deal. Usually defensive ends are the ones that you can feel pretty certain about. And in the... In the We've over the last five or six years, we've seen two Boses come out. We've seen a, a, a Chase Young. We've seen a Miles Garrett. Those guys were the easiest projections. They dominated in college. They're all great athletes, and they've been excellent in the NFL. Those guys don't exist in this draft class. Yeah. There's no you know dominant interior defensive lineman that you just like. Hey, here's the next Indomitian Sue. Here's the next Gerald McCoy. Those guys aren't here. And then the cornerback evaluations, as always are all over the board and some of those guys are going to be really really valuable players and then there's a Micah Parsons at linebacker he's number seven on our board one of the better linebacker prospects in recent years but there's a lack of certainty for sure when it comes to defensive prospects yeah I, I don't think it's a phenomenal defensive draft generally um, and as you say the thing that has propped up some of the previous drafts is there's at least like a guaranteed superstar of the group usually you know defensive lineman somewhere so whether it was a a guy with multiple seasons of dominant play on the interior or whether it was one of those phenomenal edge rusher prospects they're just not there this year um and you know maybe maybe we missed out on some of these guys by the opt-outs like there were guys that were trending in that kind of direction that if they'd had a season that posted you know a grade in the 90s and just phenomenal production we would be looking at them as one of those top tier prospects but because they didn't they sat out the year 
and didn't risk it, we have to do some more projection. Um, so Caleb that's, Farley is one of those guys. Yeah. Cornerback from Virginia Tech. A couple edge, of the edge rushers. Greg Rousseau from, uh, from Miami, mm -hmm. and he's dropped down our board a little bit. And it's yep. not and, – and that's in part because um, he didn't test or, you know, look as explosive as expected. But Greg Rousseau was the classic – had a ton of sacks in 2019 and looked like he'd be a breakout player in 2020. Who knows if he did? I mean, that's the biggest thing. I think coming out of the draft here, because you either have a smaller sample size on players who played less in 2020 or they just didn't play, yeah. somebody's going to get a but massive he, payout from a second, third, fourth rounder. He would be. He's a great example of a guy who, if he had played in 2020 and had that season, you know, that 90-plus graded season, his profile would look amazing. It would look you know, Miles Garrett-esque, right? Because he was good the previous year. Um, his PFF grade was good, but not great. And the sacks were there. So if he'd had a, like if his next season was a grade in the 90s, um, the, the sack production had stayed or went, but his, his pressure rate increased, his, his grade got better, his, his play against the run stayed strong, and his measurables were impressive. He would then, like, he'd be the top edge rusher in the class, but he elected to not, do that and not risk injury and not just generally avoid the COVID chaos of the season. So I think we're probably seeing the product of a few players not take that risk and suffering the potential upside as well. Like it wasn't always, it wasn't risk without potential reward. Like you could have propelled yourself up into the top five picks and with a great season. One of the other themes of this draft is, uh, I don't know how many times I've written in my notes, only has 600 snaps, only has 800 snaps, only has 1,000 snaps under his belt. So there is, you know, guys like Jason Owe, number 23 on our board, one of the freak edges. Quiddy Pay, freak edge at number 22 on our board. Quiddy Pay's got like 1,200 snaps in his career, never graded above 86 in a season, which is really good. But when we're talking about the Boses and the Chase Youngs, those guys were above 90 for multiple years and it was just all right we know these guys are slam dunks there's no slam dunk edge quitty pay 1200 snaps 86 was his best grade jason Oway, 700 snaps in his career 85 grade was the best in his career aziz ojalari he got over 90 from a grade standpoint this year he's got about a thousand snaps under his belt caleb farley was our top corner he's got the off season uh or the back injuries he's only got 1300 snaps over his last couple seasons and only one was was really really good so uh it's kind of like we talked about the free agent corner class a lot on the show here where it's like here's a whole bunch of guys who are good one year and and it's there's just way more uncertainty when it comes to these defensive prospects and there's no clear-cut star except for maybe a micah parsons and it's coming at linebacker a position that is inherently less valuable than some of these others yeah and even he um, like there's questions about how good he can be in coverage. At and he position. was an opt-out too, sorry. Yeah, and even he's, there's questions about what his coverage skills are at a position that's trending ever more towards coverage anyway. Now maybe the Patriots skew that back this year with their two tight end sets and running the ball down your throat. But at the moment, if you're going to be a top-tier linebacker, you need to be able to cover in space, and that would be his biggest question mark um, as a prospect. So yeah, it's a, it's a weird spot for a defense this year. This isn't good for the NFL, man. I mean, it's good if you like points and ratings. I mean, it's good if you, you know, you're signing up in Underdog Fantasy, like I said earlier, for 10 bucks and getting your free PFF edge, and your fantasy team is going to score a lot more points. And there's going to be a lot more offense if this thing stacks up. But you get every draft class has 
random ebbs and flows and trends, and sometimes there's drills in the back, and you just mm. you got to play through it, Sam. But on paper, this draft class concerns me from a defensive standpoint, and, and I think it's more we just don't know enough about a lot of these players. Yeah, and will you know some of them might have there might be a massive payoff that's that's unexpected. I think the opt out stuff probably hurt the defensive class a lot more than it did the offensive class. Like if you've shown high end play for offense you tend to be just like all right we're good we saw it done like jamar chase jamar chase missed like he has one season but the season was so insane you're like all right i saw all i needed to see i'm good um caleb farley i i mean caleb farley's a tough one because he's got the back injuries that i think is probably propelling his uh drop more than anything else but you know caleb farley has a similar kind of thing like we saw one incredible season for him but we didn't see it again and we know that defense is more volatile so we're now like a little more skittish than we would be with jamar chase so i think generally anybody on defense opting out probably didn't help themselves that much yeah i'm, I'm looking up and down the board here and it's just it looks like a whole bunch of good solid players so um maybe there's superstars lacking but like i said i think you're gonna we're gonna look back at this draft and say how did this player go in the second round how did this defensive player go in the second round um like a jabril cox from lsu how did he go in the second round and become such a good player? Whoever it is. Um, but right now on paper, there's just fewer sure things. Elijah Molden, man. That's my guy hmm. from Washington. He'll be a top 32 player in this draft, a slot slash safety. So he'll be, he'll be somewhere in between Tyron Matthew and Mike Hilton. And we're going to look back and say, Team X got a ton of value out of Elijah Molden. Maybe right. it's the Steelers to replace Hilton. Anyway, there's a lot of uh, big stories for the draft. I think we touched on... I think we touched on the biggest ones. We'll have much more from a draft perspective. Anything else you want to hit on today? Uh, we do the the mailbag. Oh yeah, let's let's answer this mail. Do I have to read it? No, I'll read it. Okay. I already we'll want one you mailbag to do the last question. One. And we're going to be back tomorrow with another bonus show talking all things NFL draft. Let's do it, Sam. Yeah. So fire us emails at uh, NFL Podcast Singular P O D C A S T uh, at pff.com. The best ones we will read out if. And we'll choose one per week to give a little free PFF subscription. That's what we've been doing. Mailbag, uh, mailbag letter, mailbag email of the week has been winning things. So this one, uh, oh, who is this from? Andrew something. You go find out who it's from and I'll read it. Uh, so this guy, email entitled Schrodinger's Cat. Love the podcast. Andrew Bowl. There you go. Uh, I believe Schrodinger's Cat is pretty mainstream at this point, but for those who aren't familiar... Schrodinger's cat essentially is a thought experiment in quantum mechanics where there's a cat concealed in a box and while the box is closed you don't know if the cat's alive or dead so in theory it therefore exists in both states alive and dead and only when you open the box do you discover and the fate of the cat is revealed etc etc so anyway he essentially likens this to Green Bay's situation at cornerback um, the Packers re-signed Kevin King and he was shocked to see how many Packers fans and reporters seem to make the point that you know, people were hating on the signing. We're only doing so because he wasn't this shiny new toy. If Kevin King had played for someone else last season, you'd love this signing. Um, but as we pointed out, you know, like the body of his work doesn't help out his case much. Um, so he says there there's numerous free agent cornerbacks who have graded both well and poorly for stretches of time, and it's unclear what their future performance would be. They exist in both states. They're, they're Schrodinger's cornerback which means you won't be able to know what you're getting until you play out the full season, open the box, and see what this guy is. Conversely, he says, the only thing we've ever seen from Kevin King is bad play. Kevin King is the dead cat in this analogy. I would rather sign a Nikel Roby Coleman 
and or insert other cornerback here, the unopened cat box, then re-sign the unambiguously dead cat that is Kevin King. I uh, hope this brought some entertainment and would like to hear your thoughts. I just wanted a reason to read out the phrase unambiguously dead cat that is Kevin King. Yeah, I love it. And it's it's <laughs> tough to argue that he's wrong, to be honest. I mean, I he's right, right? You think Kevin, Impressive emails coming in, by the Kevin way. Kevin King is a proven commodity, which is not good. Uh, why would you not rather something else that is at least potentially better than that? We might need to have a whole show where we just do the entire mailbag. There are a lot of good questions here. They're at least thought-provoking. Uh, some of them, you know, similes and metaphors and analogies go crazy. Mm. And, uh, yeah, this is a good one. I, I would also go with the mystery box. Yes. The the Schrodinger's cornerback is better than the unambiguously dead cat that is Kevin King, I think, is the way of summing I, that up. I mean, the the word of the day here has been confidence level or the, the trend for us, confidence level and, you know, knowing what you're getting in the whole thing, certainty. And um, that's not the type of certainty you want to sign. Yeah. I mean, there is a high degree of certainty that Kevin King will not play well next season. Conversely, there are many cornerbacks out on the market to whom it's at least a question. It's a gamble. Like, you could potentially get much better play. But there's also the chance that they could be as bad as Kevin King. But, like, why would you there's – there's a certainty that Kevin King will be as bad as Kevin King because he's Kevin King. It's the biggest storylines of the NFL draft plus our mailbag – Moral of the story, don't draft any un- un- unambiguously dead cats. Dead cats. Yeah. Just don't do it in the draft. We'll be back here tomorrow. Another draft show. Send us in your emails, nflpodcast at pff.com. And again, don't forget, get to pff.com. Grab your draft guide. It's the easiest way to keep up with everything we're doing here. Thanks to everybody for tuning in live on YouTube, listening, wherever you're listening to podcasts. And we'll see you guys again tomorrow for more NFL draft discussion.